people. Friends and welcome to No Normal People. I'm your host Stephen Henning, and I am also your host Dixie Lee Henning. Back on the saddle. Yep, we're but back. Not, not actually in this episode. Oh, you're talking about us as a whole. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about us as a podcast as a whole. Yeah, we weren't here last week. I mean, and we were here. We were here. We were on alive. Earth. We were living in our meat bodies. Yeah, um. <laughs> we were in those. But uh, we did not record an episode. In fact, we were trying to be more present in our meat bodies. Yeah. We had a ton of family in town For over real. the holidays. And honestly, it was a good exercise in me just learning to loosen my grip on perfectionism a little bit. Yeah, chill. And just be okay with missing an episode once in a while. Yeah, chill, dude. Like sometimes the Hennings need to... Exist in our meat bodies. Exactly. <laughs> With other meat bodies. And sometimes that requires not a lot of time spent on the podcast. So. Yeah. I really regret hitching my horse to meat bodies. Yeah. That's a little upsetting. But we're back in it. <laughs> but we're doing it. We're back. It. <laughs> Thank you to anyone who gave me a call or shot me a text asking if I was okay. We are totally okay. Other Henning updates. What's up? Oh. Oh, hey. Yeah. There was this one thing that happened like five years ago. Exactly five years ago. On this day. It was like we got married, I think. I think that, yeah, that sounds right. Happy anniversary, babe. We did it. We're done. Five years. Five years. We're done now. Happy anniversary, Remember a year ago when we're like, let's go to Scotland for our five year anniversary. Yeah. And then COVID. COVID. (laughs) I'll beep that. Yeah. But that's how I feel. Yeah. Keep it in, though. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Married for five years, podcasting for six months. Yep. Seven months almost. And we're just absolutely loving it. If you haven't noticed, the listener, if you haven't noticed that our episodes are getting longer, I just want to point out that they're getting longer. (laughs) If you've noticed that they're getting longer, it's because they are getting longer. We started with two episodes entitled Stephen Henning and Dixie Lee Henning, and those were like roughly 30 minutes. I know. We need to update those because I have a lot more to say about myself. And then we had a two part (laughs) episode with Josh because that was our very first interview. Yeah. And we got so much good stuff. We didn't want to lose it. And then we started getting a lot better at having conversations. And also a lot better at editing and knowing what could be left on the cutting room floor. But Dixie, we are discovering that you and I are becoming better interviewers. That's right. You are becoming a better interviewer. And thanks, babe. (laughs) I'm not. I'm just, I'm just not. We have had some absolutely incredible conversations over the last two weeks. Yeah. For, I mean, we've had incredible conversations with every single one of our guests, but specifically the last two weeks. I have been learned so much. Yeah. Even in the last few days, having our last two guests over here at this table. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is also, it's, it's so, so nice to interviewing have over again in a room. Yeah, except with their meat bodies. Yeah, with their, you know, meat <laughs> bodies. Except it's now summer again, and our recording room oh is a my. sauna when more than one living human is it's inside true. of it. 
So where I was going with this, with this podcast update, the episodes are getting longer and we also want to kind of play around with the concept of doing a little less intensive editing Mm -hmm. when it comes to these conversations. I put a good number of hours over the weekend into cutting some stutters out, ums, likes. Most of them are mine, quite honestly. Yes, because you're a horrible speech person. I'm the one who makes... (laughs) (laughs) Words are hard. I'm the one who makes the editing (laughs) difficult. Um, But honestly, we just kind of want to chase down this very conversational feel. So we're going to experiment with some lighter editing work. We're also pretty much just committing ourselves to longer episodes just because we typically schedule for a two-hour session. Mm -hmm. Like last Uh, night we recorded uh, someone and we talked for three hours. My goodness. It was great. And none of that is something I want to leave on the cutting room floor when it comes to the editing and producing time. So we're going to experiment with some much longer episodes. We are toying with two models right now. One is just posting two and a half hours of audio as a single episode, which we're not opposed to. The other idea we're playing with is cutting the conversation into two and posting parts one and part two. On the same day, but two separate episodes so that you can have like a specific area where it's cut off. And you can go to the second one at a different time. Help it meter out. Well, I mean, like even myself, I only really listen to podcasts if I'm cleaning, doing housework or driving. Mm -hmm. And I typically don't drive for more than 20 minutes. So if I'm listening to a podcast that's super long, I'm not going to listen to the whole thing in the car. Right. So So if we can do you the service of just cutting it in half and just letting you experience that on your own, this is an option. So let us know what you think. We're curious. Yeah. Drop us a line. Shoot us an email too if you have any thoughts on this at nopeoplepod at gmail.com. Dixie, this week we have my good friend from high school, Emily Reddinghouse. I was a good friend. You were a good friend, but she and I were very tight in high school. I know. You were in the same class and everything. And you both played drums. Same class. Whatever. Played drums. <laughs> student council. <laughs> National Honor Society. You guys were both smart and cute and awesome. I get it. Pet band. I was in pep band too. AP classes. Okay. I get it. I'm not the smartest. <laughs> no, honestly, Dix- <laughs> honestly, Dixie, like you knew this, you were there yeah. when I was in high school, but like Emily was one of my best friends. You started high school after being homeschooled for basically your entire life. It's true. And aside from church specific friends, mm-hmm. I feel like she was like your first high school specific friend yeah no legitimately she was the first person that i met that i hadn't previously met at just the church youth group right like our first experience was getting into pet band and Mm -hmm. then that one experience we had as a marching band yeah that was not it was not that That wasn't great we she and i were both relegated to the bass drums yeah for the fight song. Because you're noobs. Just, just quarter notes. I was standing at the front of the field because <laughs> I had just had knee surgery. Right. And could not march. And Stephen was really upset about that for some reason. But so this is where Emily and I met. We graduated together. We were both like near the top of our class together. Was she higher than you? I think so. I think there's a good chance. Does that make you feel bad? After that, she went to college. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> After that, she went to college um, in Spearfish, Mm -hmm. South Dakota, and then went to seminary in Chicago. What? I didn't know that. Yep. Side note, I'm not in this interview. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I did this interview alone. She, yeah, she graduated from seminary just this spring semester. Wow. She's the first person in her family to obtain a master's degree, and she is now the pastor of the Cody United Methodist Church in Cody, Wyoming. 
That's so cool. It's so legit. It's too legit to quit. And you actually interviewed her for this podcast on her first day teaching at that church, right? She preached her first sermon at that church. And then three hours later after she got home, she hopped on Discord with me and we talked for three and a half hours together. That's so cool. Emily's the coolest. She's the coolest of beans. It was spectacular. I'm just going to throw this out here too because of the conversation I had with Emily. We talk about church a lot. As you can imagine, she's a pastor and I also do a lot of thinking about church and philosophy. I'm just going to throw this out there. There's no names. There's no feeds. There's no socials yet. But Emily and I and our friend Josh from episodes three and four. Josh Llewellyn. Josh Llewellyn. The three of us are going to start our own podcast. We're going to start our own podcast talking about theology and philosophy a lot because the three of us are mega nerds when it comes to it. Fact. And also, Emily is classically trained. Yeah. She has gone to seminary in divinity. So this is a podcast where the three of us just get to nerd out because honestly, like we can have incredibly deep conversations here on No Normal People. But me, Steven, I needed a place to put all my theological questions in conversations. No, I just I just want another podcast feed to talk about it where that's specifically what the podcast is about. Right. So I'll let you know when that podcast is up. Josh, Emily and I are very excited to get this going. But in the meantime, we should get to know Emily, huh? Yeah, she's pretty sweet. I think we should just get into it. Get into it. Okay, we are going to get started with rapid fire questions. Emily, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Oceans or lakes? Lakes. Rain or sun? Rain. Tea or coffee? Tea. Early morning or late night? Late night. Summer or winter? Ooh, summer. Beaches or mountains? Mountains. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Pancakes or waffles? Pan toast. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. East coast or west coast? West coast. Sweet or savory? Sweet. Soda or pop? Soda pop. Hogwarts or the Shire? The Shire. Pizza or tacos? Tacos. Vanilla or chocolate? Vanilla. Books or movies? Books. Sweater or hoodie? Sweater. Handshakes or hugs? Hugs. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Phone calls or texts? Phone calls. Nice. Okay, that was the rapid fire. The next ones are more icebreakers, far less pressure, as if that was high pressure anyway. Right. Starting with a series of favorites. Uh, Let's go with favorite candy. Reese's peanut butter cups. Favorite snack? Lately, it's been Greek yogurt with some granola. Nice. Like a little parfait. Mm -hmm. Yeah, getting my layers on. Excellent. What's your favorite morning drink? I do a London Fog, iced or hot. Oh, yes. Will you break down the recipe that you like? Ooh, so I do, currently I use the City Brews Earl Grey Tea Mm -hmm. and Vanilla I use lactose milk because I believe I am lactose intolerant. Oh, and okay. I add a little bit of honey on the bottom and it is pretty good. Ooh, excellent. That sounds great iced. I've never thought of a London Fog iced before. You know, my husband has gotten me hooked on iced beverages probably about two years ago and it's all I drink. 
and I can't I can't get off it. This is good. I'm excited about mm-hmm. it. What's your favorite city? Chicago. What's your favorite smell? The smell of a campfire. Okay. Yep. I have campfire smell on my shirt right now and it's it's delightful. <laughs> it is truly if they could just put that in a bottle at Bath and Body Works, I would clear the shelf. Right? I would buy it all. Mm-hmm. There have been approximations attempted in candles, but it's not, it's never quite it's the same. It's not the same. Nope. No. What's your favorite TV show? Right now, it's RuPaul's Drag Race. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Favorite ice cream flavor? I would say right now I'm a Moose Tracks kind of girl. Okay. But my go-to when I go to Mo Cones, every time I come to visit, I gotta get bubblegum. Really? Okay. Yes. What are foods you will never eat? Lima beans. Oh, they're gross. They, oh, <laughs> or raisins. Raisins remind me of old people. Oh. And I just can't do it. I will take the time to pick out raisins of a dessert or any type of baked good. Mm. I will never touch it. Mm-mm. Okay. No, sir. Fair enough. Who's the smartest person you know? My dad. Oh, beautiful. You know, it's been interesting with this podcast project. I've heard a lot of my dad and my mom from almost Mm. every one of our guests. I really appreciate that. It's really funny because when I was listening to your podcast, I was like, ah, I already know the answer to this. I was going to say someone else. But when I actually think about it, it's my dad. He is one of those people that just he knows a little bit of everything. And mm, yes. he's the kind of guy that you want when you're going to like a, a tourist of like attraction like Yellowstone or Deadwood or something <laughs> like that. He just he knows something about everything. <laughs> That's great. This is classic dad behavior. I feel like every dad it, it is. Has, has a little bit of that. That is excellent. Do you have a secret talent? I am able to tie shoelaces with my toes. Wow. If I place like a pair of sneakers in front of me, I use my toes and I can tie the shoelaces and then like I can put my feet into the shoes. This makes sense. Yeah, the shoe, your feet wouldn't be in the shoe to begin with. <laughs> I mean, if if I could do it with my feet in wow. the shoes, I would be, I could take it on tour and make some money off Absolutely of that. Absolutely, you could. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stick with the career that I have now. <laughs> Perfect. What was your first job? My first job was I was a gate guard at Dealer Park for the Billings Mustangs. Mm. So I was the person that took the tickets and I, you know, let people come in and out. And if I had to kick people out because of, you know, being noisy or rambunctious, I was the person that did that. That's awesome. As a first job, like that, that sounds Mm -hmm. ideal. And they had great uniforms. They were really comfortable polos and we got free food and I love baseball. So it was really great to be able to go to work. (laughs) You know, you're out in the sun and you get to watch baseball. There's nothing better than that. Right. That's so good. What was your first pet? I had a guinea pig and her name was Sugar. She was the cutest little guinea pig I'd ever seen. And my dog ate her. It was very sad. Oh, no. Yes. Oh no. Yeah. Was this the dog that I met? The uh, the the big <laughs> the big black dog? Yeah. Yes. The mm-hmm. the big black dog. This is the one that was like half wolf or something? Mhm. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. When you, you you have, you know, dog, which is fine. And then once you add wolf into yeah. the mix, yeah. you can't really tame that 
as easily. Right. And guinea pig is just kind of natural prey. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's convenient right there in the house. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, yikes. Poor sugar. Okay. Do you have a historical hero? John Wesley. I am so excited to get there then. Let's. Yes. Okay. What is the worst fashion trend you've ever participated in? Ooh, it was short lived. Thank goodness. But I was rocking the basketball shorts and Ugg boots for a while, which was strange because I wasn't involved in many sports. (laughs) So I don't know why that was my go to outfit. (laughs) Well, like everyone else in high school was wearing it and you and I were in the pep band and maybe we were just trying to look more like we were actually in the sport. I think it was my go-to because, like, come winter, you got to wear boots, but you're still warm at the same time right. from being in the gym. And right. so I would wear shorts and it just, it fit, you know, it worked out. Right. Oh, that's very but never good. never again. Yeah. <laughs> never again. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Telekinesis. Ooh, nice. Yeah. You were ready for that one. <laughs> You know, I I got a thing with superheroes. My dad and I, Alex also really loves superheroes. We love Marvel and DC and deep into the history of it. And so that's always been a superpower that's just fascinated me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, What would you choose for your last meal? Ooh. This is like a roundabout way of asking what your favorite food is, I guess. Yeah, this is complicated. So I would definitely go get... Wendy's chicken nuggets, Burger King's french fries, a double cheeseburger from McDonald's, and then a huge bowl of egg fried rice. Wow. Yep. You can't keep you in one place. (laughs) Like, you know where you like the fries, the chicken nuggets, the burger. I am so particular. (laughs) Wow. There's just... Some places, they just get it right, and other places don't. And you can, you can fight with me all you want. I can't stand McDonald's french fries. I never have, and I never will. Okay, this is fair. Let's see. What did you want to be when you grew up? First, I wanted to be an astronaut. I got really, really deep into, like astrology and like for a fourth grade history project i studied john glenn and everyone in the class was like what's wrong with you like (laughs) you got to do Anne frank or someone i was like but john glenn is so cool yes that was quite a phase that i went through and then for a while i wanted to be a someone who worked in the morgue this was a very short-lived phase i was very little okay i had heard about this. I was watching CSI and my dad was like, you really want to do this for Uh, a living? And I was like, yeah. Then I realized how much science and math it took (laughs) to study that that job. And I was like, "Ooh, I'm good at that, but I don't want to do that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really a hard science type of girl. I I like the other side of, of study for sure. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Finally, for these icebreakers. What would you consider to be your proudest achievement? Being the first in my family to have a master's degree. Wow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you. And I earned it at 25 years old. Gosh, that's so good. Yeah, it was a lot of work and I'm so grateful for it. But to think back, I'm like, I'm 26 now. I just turned 26 mm-hmm. and my brain is just, I still can't comprehend 
for so long I've been in school and I look at where I'm at now and I'm really proud of that. Right. Yeah. We're recording this in early July and you just graduated a couple months ago. Is that right? At the end of spring semester? Yep. May 20th. Wow. That's so good. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Thank you. I'm officially a master of divinity. That is so good. And I cannot wait to get there. That's going to be a conversation. That's a conversation I've been waiting to have with you for so long. I'm so excited Mm -hmm. for it. But now that we're done with the rapid fire and now that we're done with the icebreaker, I want to kind of rewind a little bit. I want to get to know you. I guess, first of all, first and foremost, Emily Reddinghouse, thank you so much for being on No Normal People. Thank you for having me. I just love this so much. I'm so glad. I want to learn about you, learn about where you grew up and kind of like what your school journey was like. Take us through high school. Sound fair? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Laurel. Laurel locomotives. Mm -hmm. What? Yes. A lot of Laurel alumni on this podcast, which is really cool to see. (laughs) You get to hear so many stories and you kind of laugh when you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that happened in high school. Yeah, right. (laughs) But uh, I was involved with football. I was the manager for the football team all four years. Yep. I did pep band with you. That was fun. We had some good times. Holding down the percussion. Woot. Yeah. (laughs) That was, oh, man. (laughs) Good times for sure. Absolutely. I was in that and I did. We were in student council, Mm -hmm. National Honor Society. I kind of did a little bit of everything. I did track for a while and then I got hurt. Mm -hmm. So I, I decided not to do track. So I grew up in Laurel. I have an older sister and... My mom and dad, they're great. Really wacky family, if you didn't know that. For those of you, fun fact, I come from wacky family. Uh, yeah, I can attest. I was your like across-the-street neighbor for a good year or so. And, uh, yes, yeah, that's right. That tracks. <laughs> <laughs> He's keeping me honest. <laughs> I love your family. It was, it was so good to just like come hang out. It was very fun. And you knew where my house was because if you were to go on the back road towards the golf course, the back of our house was entirely painted like a mountain scene mural we had a cabin painted and mountains a lake we had all sorts of wildlife painted like an owl and bears and i mean you could see it from ways away we were just a very creative Mm -hmm. family and so i'm really appreciative for that that definitely helped me in high school to just kind of accept who i am and to know that who I am and what I do and what I like is perfectly fine. Right. And there's, there's no reason to have to change, to please anyone. Peer pressure was definitely a part of my life. I'm sure like everyone else went through during middle school and high school, but I felt like I had a good sense of who I was pretty early on in life. And that's largely due to my family. Mm-hmm. Okay. So following high school, Where did you go to college and what did you study for your undergrad? I went to Black Hill State University in Spearfish, South Dakota, and I studied human services, which is essentially a combination of history, sociology, political science, and psychology. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot wrapped into one fancy title. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my emphasis was uh, gerontology, so I focused a lot more on the sociological and psychological side of aging um, and working with those in the aged population, which 
A lot of people asked me, well, why did you do that? That sounds so creepy to be studying old people. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> when you say it like that, absolutely. But there was a lot more into it that I wanted to capture because Black Hill State didn't have a religious studies major. They didn't have a world religion major, but mm, I wanted to mm -hmm. still get that feel. So I had looked at some of their courses and they had the psychology of religion and sociology of religion. So I was able to kind of wheel and deal with the dean of my program to say, hey, can I take these courses as part of my requirements for my degree? And they approved it. So I was still nice. able to get a lot of the religious elements that I wanted in undergrad, but I wanted to have a focus in case seminary was not going to pan out. Sure. So psychology was my backup. And I love that stuff. And thank God I married Alex because he's an art therapist. And so we have some pretty good conversations wow. in regards to, you know, diagnosis and psychological theories and disorders and things like that. It's pretty fun. That's fantastic. I can only imagine what like sitting down to dinner is like between the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> If we're not talking about God, we're talking about psychology. And if we're not talking about psychology, we're talking about, hey, where should we go for the weekend? Mm. Or, you know, did you see this on Facebook? It's we're all over the board with conversation. That's so good. So did you meet Alex in college? I did. So my freshman year, actually all through college, I worked for the dining facilities at Black Hill State, which is called Avions. And this company also does catering. So we helped do banquets for the school for alumni. We did weddings, we did birthday parties, all sorts of things. Hmm. And I met Alex through Aviance. He actually worked in the back. And I had seen him come through the main dining area one day. And I was just like, oh, this is someone new. <laughs> He's not bad looking. Nice. I want to get to know him. Nice. And so... It turned out we actually lived in the same dorm building. He was just on a different floor. Mm -hmm. So we would walk back from work together when we had late catering events. And we just got to talking and hanging out. And uh, months later, I asked him out on our first date, which was Perkins. It was great. The first thing he said to me at the table was he put the menu down and he said, you can order dessert if you'd like. And that's when I Aww. knew that he was the man for me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> any, any man that lets me order dessert before our meal right. is a man after my own heart. Yeah, and won your heart with that one. Yes. Three Such years later, he, uh, he proposed and I said yes. And we got married right after we graduated. It was great. That is so good. So you mentioned when you were studying in undergrad, it sounded like seminary was always something in the background for you. Like it was something, a goal of yours that was pretty much always there. Yeah, it was something that I had sort of explored on and off, definitely throughout high school and college. Okay. And I was entering college and I was getting more involved with the church that I was a part of there in Spearfish and that really solidified it for me. It just then became the matter of, okay, well, what seminary do I attend? Because as a Methodist, you can really attend any seminary, but there are Methodist-specific seminaries that are really geared towards Methodism to prepare you, whether you're a pastor or a pastoral counselor, mm -hmm. music teacher, things like that. So it really became, okay, so where am I going to go? And at first I thought I was going to attend 
the seminary in Denver. One, because it was so close to family, Mm -hmm. but also that was the only place that I had heard of. Everyone that I knew that had gone there just said, oh, go to Iliff, go to Iliff. And, you know, at first I was just like, okay, that's where I'm going to go. And then thank goodness I met friends in Spearfish who were looking at places after they had graduated and they shared with me, hey, you should check out Garrett. And so I looked him up online and I scheduled a tour and I went out and I fell in love with it. So that's where I went. So Alex and I went out to Chicago and it was probably the best decision we had ever made. Yeah, this is so good because you were always interested in the the religious studies in your undergrad. Mm -hmm. You grew up in the Methodist church, correct? Pretty much since birth? Since my whole life. Yep. Baptized in the Methodist church. My mom was a Catholic and then she actually became a Methodist Mm -hmm. um, and my dad grew up Methodist. So it kind of was just instilled in me for my whole life. So you grew up in this church. And you also happen to find the seminary that where you want to study um, that is geared toward Methodism for you. And it's also in your favorite city ever. <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. It was almost like, well, duh, why didn't I think of this place? So many, so many <laughs> things are stacking up in, the, in its favor right now. And it worked great because Alex and I, before we had gotten married, he thought he was just going to be done with school after college and... He was studying to be a teacher, and then he didn't really like that. So then he took up psychology, Mm -hmm. um, and he stuck with art. Art was his major, and psychology was his minor. And he had been talking to, I believe it was an advisor or a professor, about exploring art therapy. And I said, hey, you should go for it. Like, you know, no one's saying you don't have to. No one's forcing you to do it. But you should really think about what you want to do and if this is something you're passionate about go explore it. And so we found a great art therapy school for him in Chicago. So it was, I mean, the, everything was just lining up perfectly for us to go Mm, there. That's fantastic. Then let's talk about your master's degree. You said it's a master's in divinity, Mm -hmm. which qualifies you for your current work Yes, there in Wyoming now. But let's talk about your degree. What kind of things were you studying and what kind of things were you paying special attention to that eventually leads you to your pastor work today? What was great about Garrett's Master of Divinity program was they had so many required courses that you had to take, and those really formulated the foundation of those who are wanting to be a pastor. So Mm -hmm. we were required to take a preaching course. We were required to take pastoral care and counseling. We were also required to take an ethics course, New Testament, Hebrew Bible, evangelism, and Christian education. And those really kind of set the stepping stones for those who wanted to have a concentration. So they had concentrations in spiritual formation. They had concentrations in Christian education. And I decided not to have a concentration. I really wanted to just kind of dip my toe in all the waters that were available. So I took some Greek. I did Latin. I did Hebrew. And then I actually took a course where I traveled for two weeks to the Holy Land and we dived into the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the history behind that and the gospel. And that was truly a a life-changing experience. I am so glad I did that. It was, the course itself was expensive, but I wouldn't have changed it for anything. Hmm. Did you always think that you were, you were headed toward pastoral work growing up or what, like, when did it start dawning on you that this might be the direction you were headed? So I was always involved 
with church by choice. I mean, as a kid, my mom would, you know, take me to Sunday school and that was just kind of routine. But as I got older, I really liked the atmosphere of the church. I liked participating in youth group. I did solos. I sang every now and then for special events like Christmas or Easter. Mm -hmm. I got involved with our church council and our different committees at the church at a young age. And so that was kind of different for my congregation. They they didn't really know what to do with that. And so they were like, maybe she wants to be a pastor, which of course, here I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I think, I think what really shaped that for me was I went to church camp and the first year I went was third grade. And I went to a place called Luckick, which is right outside of Livingston. It's in Paradise Valley, Montana. Mm -hmm which is appropriately named for so many reasons. I agree. Yes. Yes. Just phenomenal. And that camp, I kept going back every year until I graduated high school. And even after that, I volunteered as a counselor. And then it got to the point where the conference was looking and saying, hey, we need someone to take over. So me and my friend Kim Anton, who went to camp with me, they asked us to be the deans. So we actually oversee the middle school and high school camp every summer. Wow. It's just one of those things where that place had shaped me, the people there. You learn so much about yourself when you're in an environment away from peer pressure, away from, you know, technology. There's no Wi-Fi there. There's mm -hmm. no service. So you can't, you know, you can't get on Instagram. You can't text people. You're just secluded in this beautiful mountainous bowl yep, yep. <laughs> and you are with people who are experiencing life in such different ways than you and you come together and you you know you praise God and you worship and you play silly games and you have your heart-to-heart -heart moments that I will forever be grateful for those I met some of my bestest friends there and I'm still in touch with them you know and camp was also a place where I experienced I think the most heartache um, and actually where I experienced questioning my call as a pastor, hmm. ironically enough. Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear that story, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Um, so it was the summer of my sophomore year. So I was going to be a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. The last day of camp, one of my best friends, his name was Luke Benton. He went for a hike with one of our friends at the falls up at Pine Creek. And he actually slipped and he had died at the falls. Mm. Yeah, the last day of camp. I remember we all had gone home. We all like got in our vans and our cars. And usually the last day of camp, it's super sunny. Like everyone is, they had a great week. So you could just feel the joy just kind of oozing out of us. And yeah. I remember that day I got in my mom's car and it started to rain. And I was like... This is so strange. This has never happened. Didn't really think anything of it. And then that following day, we got a phone call from the dean at the time. And he had shared that news with us. And I just remember I was so angry at God. Mm. I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around, well, wait a second. Like, we were at church camp. This is such a sacred place. And, you know, he was young. He was... He was going to be a senior in high school and there was so much going for him. It just made me question so much about life and, 
you know, what does it mean to worship a loving God? How does a loving God do this, allow this, whatever? Mm. So I really wrestled with that. It took a couple years to really let that sink in. But I would say my senior year of high school, I started loving God again. I started understanding the complexities of life because that was my first exposure to death. And that's not easy. You know, it's no, it's one thing with when it's a pet, it's, you know, and if it's a distant family member, it's mm. it's hard, but you don't really fully feel the same if if you weren't close to them. But he was one of my best friends. He lived in Bozeman, so mm. I would see him pretty frequently. And he was involved in band too. So, you know, we had all sorts of great conversations with that. But after he had passed, it just life didn't feel the same and I didn't really feel like I had any potential if, you know, if Luke couldn't carry on in life. There was a lot of emotions going on, but mm. my camp friends were the ones that they helped me come back together. It was almost like a, a muscle being stretched. You know, it, it gets stronger, mm-hmm. not quite the same, but it's better than what it was before. And that's how that's how my faith journey has been and still is to this day is there's just this constant stretching, this constant changing, which is helping me envelop more of who I am and my relationship with God. Wow, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that story. That was very powerful. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your work. We're recording this early July, July 5th, in fact, mm-hmm. on a Sunday afternoon. And today was your very first Sunday as a pastor. Yeah. I want to hear everything. What was it like this morning? What was it like giving your first homily? What was it like greeting a congregation for the first time? And how did you get assigned to the church you were? I'm curious about that process in the church as well. Sure. So in the Methodist church, we I think of it as like a, a ring, like a tree ring, or like if you throw a rock in the water and you just have these rings that kind of grow. So you start with your local church mm-hmm. and that grows and that becomes all these local churches are a part of a conference or a district. And then all those districts become part of a conference and it just kind of expands from there. Mm-hmm. And the head of our conference is our bishop and our bishop is Karen Olivetto. I love her. Peace to you. You're rocking the world. Mm. She and her and her cabinet of district superintendents and fellow peers come together and they look at, okay, what are the needs of the church? What are the needs of the conference? And who do we have available to fill those needs? And that can include those who are retiring and those who are new coming. So that's me. I'm a newcomer. Mm-hmm. And I actually was appointed to Cody before I even graduated. I had to keep it a secret for like three weeks. It was so hard to keep quiet. So what happened was I'm in school and I'm getting ready for ordination. And I will hopefully in two years be fully ordained as an elder in the United Methodist Church. And I'll kind of touch on that later. Yeah. So I was in school and I'm getting ready for the first steps of ordination, which is where I go and I'm interviewed by the Board of Ordained Ministry. So I'm flying from Chicago to Cheyenne and I stop into Laurel and in Billings to go see family and I get a phone call from the bishop and she says, 
hey, we have an opening at this church. Would you like to be the pastor? And I remember wow. I said to her, can I pass my interview first? And wow. she laughed. She laughed and she goes, yes, yes, yes. Like, do your interview. You have time to get back to us, you know, discern, you know, see what the spirit is leading you to. So hmm. I had my interview. I passed it. It was great. My reading team was great for my paperwork. Mm -hmm. And then that that Friday, I told the bishop, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll accept the appointment. And she said, great. No one can know. You have to wait. And I said, oh. Okay, so <laughs> I had a job since March and I couldn't tell anyone about oh, wow. it for quite a while. Oh, yeah, wow. that was hard. Sure. So I got appointed and then I graduated, which completed the last requirement for the first step of ordination. Mm -hmm. And then at our annual conference, which is where all our clergy of the conference come together, they actually vote uh, whether or not to accept the bishop's appointments. So they can actually... Hmm go against the bishop and say, no, I don't think this person's ready to move forward yet in ordination. Luckily, that didn't happen. <laughs> mm. I was voted in fully by our clergy session. And so right as soon as I'm voted in, I get to start participating in the voting process and the whole political side of the church, which is really different. That's a yeah. side I haven't been exposed to yet. But sure. as of June 19th, I was officially commissioned as a provisional elder, which is a probationary period for a fully ordained elder. Mm -hmm. And I got to start at my church today. And it was, yes. it was great. It was so cool. I'm so excited to hear this. I, so you and I grew up, we've already touched on you and I grew up in high school together. I met you our freshman year of high school when I officially quit being a homeschooler. Right. Yeah. You decided to come join the cool kids. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> But so you and I grew up in high school together and I grew up in a, what was officially called a non-denominational church, a Bible believing church, as they would say, mm. the further and further away I've gotten from those kind of theologies. Like it was definitely just a straight up Baptist church that just didn't want to be part of the denominational system, I guess. Right. And I remember when you and I first met and I learned that you were going to the Methodist church, the way I was in my theology and in my beliefs I was skeptical that Methodism even fit into the body of Christ in any way. There was always something in the back of my mind whenever you and I would talk about Christianity. And I was always like, but are you really, though? And I, right. <laughs> I, I have since, fortunately, I have since educated myself on the way the body of Christ can certainly have many, many different expressions, whether it's Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Pentecostalism, all the, like, I think they're all expressions of a, a body of people looking for the same acceptance in who we believe Jesus to be and who uh, we believe the creator to be. So I'm wondering if you feel comfortable with it, would you just kind of give us a primer on what Methodism is and how, how it fits into the puzzle of what what I'd love to call the Catholic church in the sense of the universal church. Sure. So yeah, Methodism essentially is part of the Protestant side of Christianity. And a lot of it is derived from the doctrine, practice, and belief of the great John Wesley. Mm -hmm. And John Wesley, he himself was a very interesting character. He basically sought to 
revive and revise the church. Mm-hmm. So he broke off from the Church of England within the 18th century. And from there, it really expanded as he came to America and was trying to incorporate this new method of church with mm-hmm. those in the States. And so he had sent out bishops at the time to go and to start these churches and to start circuits. And so sending other people to go and to ride from town to town, yeah. they wouldn't stay for very long and they would preach the gospel. They would they would share the Bible and they would stay for about a month and then they'd go to the next town. And that would hopefully start the momentum of more permanent churches to be established. Mm-hmm. And Wesleyan theology in itself is really fascinating because it kind of incorporates slightly some of what the Church of England was doing, but Wesley was really kind of turning the tables a lot, preaching about, you know, helping the poor and speaking Mm -hmm. a lot to oppression, which was kind of interesting in the time that Wesley was living in, I think, kind of revolutionary in the sense. He was one that he, there were four, if I recall, four kind of major formations of what it means to love. And it was, you know, love of God, love of neighbor, love of creation, and love of self. Mm -hmm. Those were the four fundamental elements that he really wanted to pass down to those who were listening to him and to those who he had appointed to go and to preach in all these towns and all these circuits. It's just super neat. And he was an advocate for the working class. He had a huge epiphany when it came to slavery. He wrote many sermons and For one of my assignments, I had to outline 52 of them, and some of them are 10, 15 pages long, and they're written in King James style, and that's a a lot of work in itself to try and analyze that, but he he had a way of really changing his heart and his mind about certain issues, and one of those was slavery, which is just fascinating. Yeah, Wesley's an interesting dude. His brother Charles is great. He wrote so many hymns. He was a great musician. Yes. And so many of them are still sung today. And they're probably, I mean, they're, I actually probably like Charles more than John, but they just, those two together had such a good chemistry of expressing theology and changing Mm -hmm. Methodism to what it is today, which is ironic because there's an inside joke at our seminary where we, the church, the Methodist church, was actually the church that John Wesley sought to reform. It wasn't never meant to be an mm. established denomination. It was just meant to be a sort of temporary movement to change things. But then it became so established and so grounded that it eventually took the form of its own denomination, Right, which is just so weird. Yeah. Uh, okay. Where do I want to go with this? There are so many questions I have that I'd love for you and I to have a conversation about. I want to talk about these circuits that he was sending people out on. You mentioned preach the gospel. And to me, like given my context, like I said, I I grew up in a non-denominational church that was essentially Baptist. The gospel to us Baptists and us who definitely slide ourselves way closer to Calvinism The gospel Mm -hmm. can become a very individual experience. Yes. The definition of the gospel I grew up with is essentially we are all born with original sin. We are all born depraved in some way and that we need to be rescued from sin by Jesus. And with Jesus's death and resurrection and his ministry, we are given a way to offer our hearts to God and accept the salvation so that God would 
he would see Jesus on us and forgive us our sins that would have destined us to hell. But now we are allowed into heaven because we are made pure by the blood of Christ, a very individual experience. Mm -hmm. And in my, in my learning about Methodism, I am fascinated by what, what, like even you as a Methodist pastor, what, what is the gospel to you? And what does it mean to preach the gospel for a Methodist as opposed to kind of this, this Calvinist Baptist uh, non-denominational, I don't know. You, you get what I'm saying. Sure. One thing that I love about the Methodist church is there's a lot of room for diversity in this very unitive state mm-hmm. of being. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love is basically Methodism teaches that salvation is initiated when Someone chooses to respond to God. Mm-hmm. You know, they're drawn near to God. And this is Wesleyan doctrine of provenient grace. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the synergism taking place. There's this there's this dynamic of, you know, it's there, you can accept it. But if you choose not to, it's still there. It's still there for you. It's never going to be turned away from you. Right. And I think also what's great is that a person is free to not only reject it, but to accept it in Mm -hmm. that same act of free will. That, Mm -hmm. I think, is beautiful in itself. It's not so constrictive. It's very expansive in that sense. Also, and I wish we expanded more on this in Methodism, but the Holy Spirit is also very present. Mm -hmm. But in modern Mm -hmm. Methodism, I feel like a lot of churches have kind of shied away from talking about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Especially when it comes to a more Trinitarian aspect of you have God, the father, you have Jesus, the son. Oh yeah. And then there's the Holy spirit, that thing over there. Right. We want to incorporate the Holy spirit more. And I think we should, but that's just not something that we've gotten around to. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I think when I think of the gospel, I obviously think of the new Testament and I think of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are just kind of a kind of cop-out answer for me. Sure. The gospel in itself is the whole, the whole Bible really is good news. That's what gospel is, is it's good news mm-hmm. when you break down the word. Yeah. That word that Jesus would have been reading was the Hebrew Bible. So that in itself is good news because he was able to use that in mm-hmm. his life and in his ministry. And when I think of gospel, I think of you know, how is God acting in my life? Because God is a creator. God is a sustainer and does wonderful things. And that is good news. So what is it that I have to share that maybe someone else needs to hear? Mm -hmm. What is the Holy Spirit moving within me to share with other people? Because there's so much to share. And theology is such an interesting field of study because we try to put God in a box mm-hmm. and theology is the word that we use to do that. And that's why I went into this field because we can never fully understand. And there's just so much to hear and to try to absorb. I think that in itself is good news mm-hmm. is knowing that we may never fully know, but we can try to obtain that and we can do our very best to live into the teachings of Jesus, to live into What is God placing on our hearts? What does it mean to care for creation, you know, to love our neighbor and to do all the good that you can in all the ways that you can? Those are things that I strive to do and I strive to teach at the pulpit when I'm preaching. And actually, my first sermon today, I preached about Ubuntu, which I'm sure you've heard that phrase, Mm -hmm. but 
if you haven't, you know, I am because we are, that's, that's good news. That's Jesus's life was all about that. And that in itself is good news. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of this narrative of God's story and to have so many people in my life just encapsulate the image of God. You know, the Imago Dei is in everyone and you can see that in so many different ways. And that's just beautiful to me. Mm, That's so good. So it seems like the gospel in Methodism, there is an aspect of individuality that especially emphasizes our free will acts to either accept or reject what's being offered by Christ. But what it sounds like to me is that the gospel and Methodism, it was never meant to be so individualistic. And it sounds more mm-hmm. like an announcement to the collective humanity that death has been defeated and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life into a flourishing life through the Holy Spirit. I get so many more collective mm-hmm collective hope. It's far less about the individual soul and it's about a community that's seeking after God together and knitting themselves together, which is very much like the body of Christ we grew up hearing about. But for me, in my background, it was never the emphasis. It was always about what are you doing to avoid temptation or what are you doing to be praying for for the people around you and, and, and less about what could we be collectively engaging ourselves to do and actually act upon the world, you know? Right. And one of the, I guess a prime example of that in Methodism is our baptismal vows. So we believe in infant baptism and you can actually be baptized, you know, at 99 or nine, whatever. We take them all in. And our baptismal vows are actually written liturgically to incorporate the church. So Mm -hmm. the individual that's being baptized, they say their vows and then the church is then turned and they, you know, we asked, do you, the church, vow to raise this person in love Mm. and care? And do you promise to be in community with this person? And it's not just a one-time thing. That's what I love about, especially baptism. That's one of my favorite sacraments is it's a renewal. It's a constant process of remembering Mm. your baptism and remembering that you are part of this community of love and grace. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a t-shirt that I, I wore for one of my sermons in in Chicago when I was preaching and it's one of our baptismal vows. It's rejecting evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they may take. That's something I have to remind myself. That's not just a one-time thing. Yes, right. And my church, my community, my family, they remind me of that. And they remind me of the vows that we as a whole decided together to embrace and embark on constantly. And that's mm. just so awesome to think about. Thank you for listening to No Normal People this week. If you like what you're hearing, the best place to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts or Facebook.com, where you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at No People Pod. That's K-N-O-W People Pod. Also, be sure to use our hashtags, No Normal People and hashtag KNP. If you haven't been there in a while, we have a newly designed website over at nonormalpeople.com. And while you're there, you can check out the store where we have podcast artwork featured stickers. And coming soon, we'll have a locally roasted and packaged No Normal People coffee blend. Hey, Steven. Yeah, babe. Do you know what happens on July 31st? Harry Potter was born? Uh, yes, technically. Thank you. also... (laughs) 
a podcast a was podcast born. A podcast was born. Na, 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 na. <laughs> so this Friday, July 31st, first episode, season one, episode one of Author's Intent is dropping. Absolutely. Anywhere you can find podcasts hosted by yours truly. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. What's going to happen in a typical episode? So I decided a while ago that I wanted to do a more season-driven podcast. So season one of Author's Intent is called Beginnings. Oh. So we will be going over the beginnings of specific stories, starting, of course, with Harry Potter. Yes. And the Sorcerer's Stone. We will go through the first books of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games. Mm. All those kinds of things. All only going through the first books. Okay. That is specifically because I don't want this to be a single book driven podcast. Sure. This isn't just Harry Potter. You podcast. don't want your first seven seasons. <laughs> yes, to be I don't want Harry Potter. I don't want three years of my life to be dedicated to Harry Potter. Well, I do, you but do. like not on a podcast. <laughs> want to bring some diversity? <laughs> yeah, to the we're gonna theme. we're gonna change yeah. it up because I like a lot more books than just Harry Potter. We're going to go through the beginnings of all of these really awesome stories and just talk about specifics from the books and specifics from the movies and things that were missed in between. I will have semi-regular guest hosts every month, typically the last Friday of the month. Mm -hmm. I will have a guest host and we will talk about two specific chapters and the chapters that I had talked about previously for the book. Okay. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm so here for it. <laughs> I get to talk about two of my favorite things. Absolutely. And those are books and movies. <laughs> yes, I am so here for it. And I am so glad. No, I mean literally, like I'm on the first episode with you. Yeah, I know. We've talked about this. Yeah, I know. You're the first guest host. Thank you. <laughs> Hi there, my name is Dixie Lee and I am the host of Author's Intent. As a movie addict and book enthusiast, I both love and hate the decisions some directors make in book adaptations. Join me as we go through the best books this world has to offer as we dive into what the author intended. We'll talk about the things that were done well as well as some of the major faux pas in some of the most beloved stories. Season 1, Episode 1, we will be diving into the wonderful world of Harry Potter, starting, of course, with the Sorcerer's Stone. You can follow this podcast on Instagram at Authors Intent. And a special thanks to Louis Zong for the use of his song Melody Meadows off of his album Levels. I grew up learning that the only two sacraments that mattered to a New Testament Christian was baptism and the Eucharist, uh, but we wouldn't call it Eucharist because that's what the Catholics called it. So it was communion for us or the <laughs> Lord's Supper. Can we talk about the Eucharist a little bit and how that sacrament endures through Methodism and what it means to you as a pastor? Mm, God must be working today because I talked about that in my sermon today. Yes. We actually participated in Eucharist together. And the way we did it, it was different. They had never done it before. It was the little individual packaged elements mm -hmm. just because of COVID. Yeah. You have to be cautious. Yes, absolutely. But it was great because I was able to talk about how this meal, this, this gathering of people was 
a meal shared with friends. These friends were not perfect. These friends had differences. You know, one would betray him, one would deny him, and one would doubt him. Mm. You know, clearly these were people who were just people. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus did, and I love it, if you read the liturgy, it's he took the bread, he gave thanks. That was the first thing he did, was he gave thanks. And then he broke it and then shared it with his friends. And that in itself shows me personally that Jesus was giving thanks to God for what he was about to embark on on the cross. Mm-hmm. Even though he knew, you know, he had questioned, he was maybe fearful because Jesus was human. I mean, he experienced things that we experienced, I'm sure. Mm. But he gave thanks. He gave thanks to God for the life that he was given and the life that he had given to the people on earth. And he knew what this was going to do for them. And mm-hmm. he broke it. And that in itself, I mean, Jesus was, he was tortured. He was brutalized. And, you know, to die of his, of his asphyxiation in itself is a very painful experience. Mm. And that was the reason why the government of that time chose to do it that way. That was the most humiliating way to die on the cross. They did it for so many different types of people. So what better way to humiliate someone who right. is supposedly the Christ, you know, than to give it to your friends and to say, this is now a part of you. You know, you're a part of me. This communal sharing of of pain and of love all the same time mm. is just a beautiful chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. Because here's the the most humiliating thing that humanity could dream up in order to execute someone in a very public way to then yes. also warn the rest of the people around. Like if you're going to be, if you're going to act like this guy, then you're going to hang on a tree like this guy. Yeah. But here's Jesus subverting that whole thing and saying, yeah, I'm going to suffer. Yeah. This is going to be humiliating. So instead of avoiding it or taking this on my own, I'm going to have an entire meal with mm-hmm. my friends and family in the upper room. We're going to celebrate Passover. And then I'm going to institute this thing that subverts this whole narrative and says, this is not humiliating. In fact, this is exactly what needs to happen in order for you to truly know what I'm doing. Absolutely. And, and I, I get think, to share it with you. And at the time, when you think about the government, what was happening in early first century mm-hmm. Palestine, I mean, here was a person who was willing to turn the world on its head when it came to looking at the majority. Right. You know, who who were those who were disinherited from the world who needed to have their voices heard? And if that was the way to do it, he was going to do it. And that's exactly what happened. Hmm. What? How does Methodism handle the Eucharist in a church context? Because I grew up being taught that you were only allowed or you were, you were strongly encouraged to not partake in the Lord's Supper if you yourself did not identify as a Christian or if you haven't prayed the sinner's prayer, as it were. Mm. I have had one experience in a Methodist church, and it was actually back at the Methodist church in Laurel with Pastor Dolly. And we happened to (gasps) go, yes, and we happened to go on what turned out to be essentially the Holy Eucharist Sunday, like the big Sunday Mm -hmm. for Eucharist. And it was so refreshing to me to hear Pastor Dolly from from the lectern up there announced that the Eucharist was for everyone. That is essentially was an open table theology of the Eucharist. 
does that track for you? Is that true for you? Yes. Is this is this how Methodism has always practiced it? Absolutely. For as long as I can remember when I participated, they always the pastor had always shared this is an open table. Hmm. Um, and actually if you look at the word Eucharist, it comes from the Greek word for Thanksgiving and it reminds us of a Thanksgiving of this gift of creation and salvation. And so what better hmm. way to do that that as community for all people to be invited into this? Yes, absolutely. And so it's an open invitation, which again allows that free will to say, if you don't want to participate, know that that's okay and you're still loved. That's the emphasis that's important, I right. feel like, is giving that space for people to feel welcomed in their own way. Mm-hmm. I personally do that and I don't think I will ever change that, especially what's happening with our church, with our debate over LGBTQ clergy, you know, that's something that's really close to my heart. And, you know, there's a song for everyone born, a place at the table. And that's what it's talking about is everyone is invited. Everyone has a gift to share yeah. and a space to be seated and to be welcomed into this space. That is, that's so beautiful to me because I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of theological debate that I've gotten into over the last few years. And the one that I always come back to is that the Eucharist ought to be an open table. And Mm -hmm. what better example to model an open table theology on, given the fact that Jesus shares the broken bread and the cup of wine with Judas, his betrayer? Yes. Like, what was was this supposed to be, if not an open table for everyone to feel welcomed and everyone to feel accepted, if the very person who is going to betray him and give his position away in the garden of Gethsemane when he did betray him with a kiss, you know, and actually engineer a moment for Rome to finally capture him. What is Eucharist if we're not sharing it with Mm. Judas himself? Right. And, you know, if you think about it, we're all Judas in a way. We are all, we have all done something in some way or fashion and we will again. I Mm -hmm. mean, we're imperfect people in a perfect God, Mm. that image is placed in us. You know, we can strive for this perfectness Mm -hmm. as much as we want. And just knowing that we're striving for that is that's what God loves. That's what God wants is to know that we are yearning for this and we are trying to embody that the best we can. And yeah, like I said, there was, there was one who betrayed one who doubted and one who denied that, those are very human experiences, and that in itself is something that we can find joy in to say, I can I can mess up, and I'm still welcome. Yeah. That's something that, and I think especially today in our society, we really need to look at to say, here are these people that we are saying are not good enough. Here are people that we are putting in the margins who are disinherited. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that need to be welcomed. Mm. They are the ones that should set the table for us, that should create the space of welcoming because they are the ones who are not being heard. We have no say in who's welcomed because all are welcome. They are the ones who should be the first at the table because they are the prime example of what it means to be loving and accepting and to know what it means to be in a low place and to feel I think what Jesus felt at times, because he was disinherited from those in power. There were people who did not feel what he had to share was good enough. There were those who felt that what he was doing was just causing trouble for the majority and he needed to be put in his place. And that 
is revolutionary. Mm. And that's what the table should be, is a revolution. This statement of, here we stand, hand in hand, sharing this meal, giving thanks for a God that loves and embraces all. Oh, no joke, Emily. You got me crying. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad you're a pastor. My goodness, because if this isn't the gospel, I don't, I don't know, what, know what we're doing. Church is a joke. If this isn't the gospel, if this isn't what it was always intended to be. To wrap up a conversation, I could honestly touch on like every single bit of theology that we could. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because I'd be interested to talk about hell. I'd be interested to talk about LGBTQ. There's so many things that we could go, but uh, I want to respect <laughs> I respect your time a little bit more than that. I'm wondering if you could help us wrap up a, our conversation about Methodism by introducing us to the Wesleyan quadrilateral and how it oh. kind of forms the foundation for the way the Methodist church operates. I'm so glad you asked that because fun fact, Wesley actually like didn't create <laughs> the it was a guy by the name of Albert Outler, and essentially this quadrilateral, this four-sided formation for our methodology of theological reflection is based on the idea of uh, experience, scripture, tradition, and reason. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is a lot of people want to say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm fed or I experience things more when I when I'm in scripture or, you know, tradition is really where I'm at with worship and liturgy uh, and things like that. And what's interesting is the quadrilateral itself actually has further divisions than what we are used to. Mm -hmm. um, let's see if I can pull up the picture really quick for a project in seminary. I actually created a Wesleyan quadrilateral using the elements of works of piety and works of mercy to, to divide experience, tradition, reason, and, and all that. Wow. I can't find the picture, but I'll have to find it eventually. It was so good. And basically you have public acts and you have private acts. Uh, and so mm. when I think of private acts, I think of, you know, prayer or devotion. Those are something that you do, by yourself. I mean, you can do it communally, but those are those are private acts of piety. Mm -hmm. And that would be part of tradition. Mm -hmm. Worship in itself is an act of piety. And when you do it by yourself, it is then, you know, an individual experience. Mm -hmm. When you go on the other side of you have a public works of piety, that would actually be acts of compassion. So visiting the poor visiting those imprisoned, helping the sick. That's part of experience. That is something that you are a part of. Mm. And so when you look at the size of the quadrilateral, it's so easy just to see the four elements, but you can actually split those even further. And I think of public acts of mercy would be social justice. I think of participating in, in marches and participating in political sides of debate and being a lobbyist and those kinds of things that people can do more publicly. And I think of public acts of uh, mercy and I think it just it's so it's so complex than just the four sides. Yeah. But when you look at it, it's great because it gives you a sense of these are the things that shape you as a Methodist. Hmm. 
And actually, these are things that just shape you as a person because you could be Methodist, you could be Baptist, you could be Muslim, whatever. Like, these are just human elements that I'm sure everyone participates in, their own scripture, their own tradition, their own experience, and their own reason. Mm -hmm. But in the Methodist world, scripture and tradition are probably the most favored. Experience is one that is kind of hard to talk about because it is so individualistic. Right. Same with reason. And so if you were to look at the quadrilateral, you would see tradition and scripture at the top and reason experience on the bottom. But there really is no hierarchy. Not one is better than the other. They should actually be incorporated equally Mm. to really shape you to the fullest of your ability as a Christian. And you could have favorites. Like, scripture is probably one of my favorite because studying Greek and Hebrew and Latin, that really changes how you read scripture. And applying it to a context here in the 21st century is just mind-blowing. But I have classmates who really loved experience. Sure, scripture is promising, but, you know, you have experience and individual ideas and notions that are carried out through your actions and through your being that is probably something that other people can relate to. When you share a story and someone says, I can totally see where you're coming from. I had a similar experience. That brings people together. That's mm. that's a Christian loving interaction right there. Yeah. It, the quadrilateral is something a lot of Methodists have actually debated kind of ditching. Uh, <laughs> really? And I think it's... And I think it's because of this idea of trying to put one over the other. Oh, to identify a hierarchy. Yeah, and that's something that we struggle with as a denomination is this Mm. idea of hierarchy. We see it with elders and deacons. So elders are those who are ordained in the order of service and word, and deacons are those who are ordained in the order of works of mercy and justice. So typically deacons are those who are working in nonprofits. They're working on college campuses. They're working in the church, but just not as the pastor. Um, And then elders are the ones who are typically appointed to churches and doing most of the preaching and and the doctrine work of the church. And it's so sad because we have this idea of, oh, well, you're an elder? You're up at the top. You're a deacon? Mm, That's kind of cool, but you're not an elder. Lesser than. You can't do this and that. And that's so not true. Right. Deacons are just as qualified as elders. There's no division. It makes no sense. So the quadrilateral has kind of fallen into that same Mm. trap of, well, scripture's clearly better than reason or tradition is clearly better than experience. Not the case at all. Right. There's a reason why it's a quadrilateral. It's equal. Are you familiar with uh, Richard Rohr's concept of, I think he, he calls it like something like the living tri- or tricycle or something where he has experience as the front wheel of a tricycle and scripture and tradition as the back two. Um, mm. He chose to set up his his kind of theory, his kind of system here with experience actually at the front because he certainly kind of leans more toward the the mystical side of Catholicism, mm-hmm. very much leaning into the Christian mystics like Teresa of Avila and St. Francis. So when, when he built his, his kind of system that he calls the tricycle, he's like, the front wheel is experience because of course it is. It's essentially his argument. Like, <laughs> we can't experience scripture in a completely 
sanitized or whitewashed way. Like we, of course we bring mm-hmm. our experience to scripture first before scripture comes to our experience. Right. Same with tradition. Like we only experience uh, just by its very nature. We experience tradition in what's handed to us from the past, from systems that were dreamed up or from great teachers and great philosophers and uh, theologians. Like we're handed tradition down. But again, mm-hmm. like our experience is first and foremost because you know, like a one-year-old only has experience. It does not have scripture. It does not have tradition, but it is still... And it doesn't a, have reason, yeah. And it, But it is still a living, breathing image of God, like image bearer. Exactly. That's an interesting concept. I, I, I can definitely see how that kind of came out of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I personally, I really like the addition of reason into the whole uh, just paradigm of handling human life and handling a a Christian life. I think, I think reason in there adds so much. Oh yeah. I was wondering if you could just help me break down the root of the name Methodist, um, because it certainly seems like the way your theology is kind of fronted into the world. And even the way you've been talking to me now about different experiences in seminary and now being a pastor, it sounds like there is a major emphasis on action and on mm-hmm. what we might call, you know, if orthodoxy is correct thinking, then orthopraxis or orthopraxy is mm. correct action or embodying the orthodoxy in a way that actually ministers to the world and not just like gets into Socratic arguments and apologetics. Right. So I'm wondering if you could help break down the, uh, the root of even the word Methodism and kind of what it means for the denomination and what it means for you. Sure. So I think... Wesley may or may not have intended to use the word Methodism, but I think because of how he was seeing the Church of England and the split that would eventually take place was a method of action. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had probably calculated because he actually really wanted to stay in the Church of England, but he was opposed to so many different ideas within the church that eventually that's how this denomination took place and when i think of methodism the word method obviously stands out but not for i think the most obvious reason i think it's not just the method of sharing the gospel or you know the method of preaching it's the method of being a christian and being a human mm-hmm. there is a method to living out your life the way that god intended and i think what's great about that is Methodism allows this dialogue to take place where if you want to fully understand, you have to hear different narratives. And that was kind of cool in the sense of the circuit writers, because you would have one preacher who came and would, would talk for, you know, and it would stay for a while and would leave. And then you would have someone else come and share an idea. And they may say something slightly different mm. than the first person that was there. Mm-hmm. They were essentially preaching the same message, but with different nuances in a way. And it was this itinerant preaching that became a method of sharing the gospel and then later became a method of living your life, you know, not being just stuck in one set of mind, you know, not being stuck in this one way of thinking, but really expanding and taking in different elements of different practices and Mm. incorporating that into your everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it's cool because we are still itinerant pastors today. So I'm serving in Cody, United Methodist Church, 
And I could be here for a year. I could be here for 10 years. Mm. My bishop could call and say, hey, we have a need here in Kalispell or we have a need in Salt Lake City. That's where you got to go. And that's where I go. I pick up my life and I go there. And it's such a different way of living that I'm not used to. But I'm excited to see it because it'll be a way of not only getting to know people and, and seeing places, but it's a way of seeing God in new ways. You know, I've lived in Spearfish for four years. I lived in Chicago for three years. So I was, in a sense, itinerant, but I was doing that by my own choice. Uh, now I'm entering a career and a life where I'm no longer at the control of the cockpit. Mm. My bishop says, go here. I discern that. And, and God ultimately says, yes, this is where you go. And I will gladly do it. And it, there's a method behind it. And there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a reason in a discourse that takes place in order for this result to happen. And it's just so interesting. And we truly do have a method for everything. Like there's a running joke. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it takes a committee, so we have to form the committee first. Once the committee's <laughs> formed, we'll then vote on how to change the light bulb. It goes on and on from there. <laughs> yes. We are methodical. We pay attention to the particularities of a situation and an experience. And we do that in a communal way. It is very much relational. And I think of method, and I'm sure if I was to look at the Greek or the Latin of that word, Somehow, some way, there would be a tie to community. Mm. There would be a tie to relationship mm -hmm. because for something to be a method, pieces have to come together. It's not just one thing that is that is the sole focus and that's just it. There are things that feed into that focus and you have to do that by expanding your horizon and taking in information and, mm. and digesting it. And that's a method in itself. So that in itself is a communal thing of of doing that. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Wesley even wanted to call it Methodism. There are probably other words that he would have chosen, but that seems to be the word that stuck. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's clearly evident today. That's so good. Emily, thank you for indulging me with all my questions about Methodism <laughs> and about your experience <laughs> as a pastor. Like I can clearly tell that this is what you're passionate about. And I'm sure this conversation could go late into the night if I allowed it to. Oh yeah. Cause it's, it's like two nerds are just in their element right now. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. I'm very excited for you and your, uh, your assignment there in Cody. It's very exciting to see you like, because I've, I've been following you on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. And like you, you and I were good friends in high school, but following you Mm -hmm. kind of through your journey in, in undergrad studies and into Chicago was, was so exciting for me. And then seeing the picture of you on Instagram, standing in front of the sign in Cody that says, welcome pastor Emily. I was like, Oh, she's doing it, man. Like that. Yes, she's doing it. <laughs> it made me so excited. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Let's, I want to steal the, steal the conversation a little bit more toward just some of your other interests and passions and hobbies and whatnot. First, mm -hmm. I want to talk about your three years in Chicago. And I want to talk about how you Oof. grew up as a fanatical Chicago sports fan. Like name the sport that's based in Chicago. Emily's a fan of it. Oh yeah. So like, how did this start for you and in your family? And what was it like living in Chicago? Just kind of in your 
sports mecca. Oh, yes. My dad actually was born in Rollins, Wyoming. And when he was two, my grandpa worked for the steel company. And there's a huge steel company in Chicago. So they relocated to Gary, Indiana, which is just probably 30 minutes south of Chicago. Mm -hmm. My dad would go into the city with his brothers and on his own. They That's all they grew up with was Chicago sports. And the city was right there and the culture there was just alive and vibrant and different. And so when my dad met my mom, they were in the Air Force, they got married. Mm. They then were stationed in Great Falls. My sister was born. They had served their term for the military. So then they relocated to Billings, which is where my mom works, and then found a place in Laurel. And I was born, and so all we knew was Chicago because that was what my dad just taught us. I see. He, okay. he was home babysitting us, you know, on weekends when mom had to work. Instead of calling a sitter, he's like, no, nah, I got this. And he would turn on a Cubs game, and we'd sit on his lap, and we'd get all decked out in Cubs gear, and we'd watch. <laughs> and when it was football season, you bet your dollar we were home early from church because we were watching football. And, right. you know, Gotta my birthday was... Yeah, you got the Bears. They're classic. They're America's team. I don't care what people say about Dallas. They're they're wrong. (laughs) They're so wrong. And then like, you know, around my birthday is Stanley Cup season for hockey. So, of course, you got to cheer the Blackhawks like Mm. that was all we knew. And I remember in high school. I got so much crap for being a Chicago fan. Right. Because where we, because where we were going to high school, it's like you're either a Seattle fan or a Denver fan for all sports. If not for everything, we're not going to talk to you. (laughs) Right. And it was okay if you were, you know, a Green Bay fan, like that was fine. But oh, Mm. heaven forbid you're a Bears fan. And I did. I got so much crap from my (laughs) classmates. And I remember when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. One, I cried. I I was a bawling mess at the bar. Of course (laughs) you did. I called my dad and I said, dad, we did it. And he goes, yeah, but why are you crying? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Just excited. (laughs) I'm just so happy. And I I was so invested. I got tattoos for my teams. I, when the cups, (laughs) when the Stanley, when the when the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup in 2010, I was like, I'm getting a tattoo. The next time they win, 2013 came around. I got my tattoo. Cubs mm-hmm. won the World Series. I got my tattoo. I'm just waiting on my bears. It'll happen. I may be 80. Lord willing, That's okay. yes. Right. <laughs> and so when Alex and I were exploring seminary and, and graduate school, Denver came up. We looked at those schools and they just weren't a good fit. And so mm-hmm. after I heard about Garrett and we looked into schools for him, we were banking on getting accepted there. And we did. And I told my dad and he was like, you are going to love it. The culture there is just so different than what you're used to in Montana. And it is. I, for probably five months, would bump into someone and say, I'm sorry, excuse me. And they looked at me like I was speaking a different language. They're like, what? Why is she apologizing? Like, you just keep going. Don't worry about me. Get going. (laughs) Like, you are in a fast paced world. You don't wait for lights to change. You yes. don't wait for people to respond. You just go. It's a hustle bustle world. See, and I, I think we grew up in Montana being tough. If you bump into someone on a sidewalk or in a store or something, the nature of Montana is we're so flip and spread out that if you hit someone, it's going to be interpreted as intentional unless you apologize for yes. it. Yes. <laughs> and even like if you didn't mean to, if it was 
solely accidental. You still apologize. Right. You take ownership of something that you didn't even do. Yes. Not in Chicago. Yes. It is. No one gives a rat's butt. Like, it's right. just you go. It's fine. Mm. Okay. And it was so different because, I mean, I'm an extrovert and I, I love people. And that's a fault to a certain extent, because I care so much about people. I want to make sure people are okay. Mm. I want to make sure people are doing well. And in a place like that, it's like, you don't have time for that. <laughs> and also, it's not your problem. That's fair. <laughs> like, yeah. if some, like, it is very much a, you know, you kind of turn away. And that was very different. And those three years, Alex and I kind of got hard and rugged around the edges. Like, yeah. I've been here and I've noticed times where I've crossed the street and, you know, maybe I bump into someone and I don't say anything or, you know, the light hasn't changed. I decide to cross the street and there's a car coming by like I don't care. (laughs) And it's just so different than what we've been used to Uh for three years. You got to adjust again. But we've loved it. The food is so, I mean, a Chicago hot dog on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. Mm, Yep. It's all you need. And I mean, And, and the famous deep dish pizza. Oh, which if you're ever going to go, you got to go to Lou Malnati's. That's the only place to go for a true deep dish pizza. Okay. So good. And we lived, uh, so in Chicago, the way the city is laid out with the train system Mm -hmm. is you can take the train westward, south, or north. And we lived north of Chicago, just five minutes away. Wow. Uh, so we would take the train to go downtown for events and we would be on the train. We would pass right by Wrigley. I mean, we would mm. be on the train and you could watch a game from the train. Mm. Of course, you're flying by, but right. it's right there you on can, Addison. Right. You can see and, a pitch or two, right? Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, fly ball. I'm there. Right? Let me be there. Yes. And I was so lucky. Alex and I worked so hard to buy tickets to games and to go see things. Mm -hmm. We saw Wicked, you know, Mm. a Broadway production in the Chicago theater, which is gorgeous. Which, real quick, let's pause on Wicked because I have a beef with our entire senior class from Laurel High School because we went (sighs) Mm. to flipping, we went to New York City in 2013 and and we had a choice between Wicked and Rock of Ages. I know. And you and I were the only people that voted for Wicked. (laughs) It was so sad. And I told myself after, which that trip to New York was great. Don't get me wrong. It was fantastic. After that trip, I swore to myself, I will see Wicked. I don't care what it takes. And so we did. Alex and I for Christmas, the first year we were in Chicago, went and saw Wicked. And I cried. This is, I am so happy for you. I have still not seen it. And now I'm jealous. I know. I will eventually get there. You will. You will. Uh, my 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 newest Broadway bucket list is now Hamilton, of course. Of course. I didn't get I didn't get Hamilton until I watched it on Disney Plus yesterday on July fourth. Because why it. not? Yeah, I'm gonna have to go see that in person. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh, so good. Okay. So we were we were able to. I mean, we had the Art Institute there, which there are so many wonderful works of art you got van gogh and picasso and just so many different things there and you got the field museum there's just oh and the adler planetarium the astronaut in me just loved going Mm. there all the time Mm -hmm. it was so cool to be a part of a city you know because when you think of chicago like you just think just downtown and 
you just think of like the theater district and you think of the Cubs and and that's really it. But there's so much more to that. And mm. we were able to experience that in those three years. That's so awesome. And I'm just so grateful for that. I love it. I miss it. Actually, I miss it a lot. But after three years, you really start to think, okay, you know, Alex and I, we want to have a family. We want to move on in our careers. Is this where we want to stay? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> we are big sky people. Mm. We love being outdoors. We love rugged west yeah steady pace life we love being close to our family and luckily chicago is a place that now that we've been there and experienced it we want to go back and visit we know where to go we know how we know how things work right and you don't have to be just like a tourist exactly you You don't have to be the tourist anymore exactly you know the secret spots it's just oh so many secret spots it's (sighs) I can't even count on my fingers all the little nooks and crannies of Chicago that are just not talked about. Right. I love it. Okay. Let's see. Let's keep talking about you. I wanted to ask if there were any particular morning or evening routines that you've learned to incorporate into your life. Absolutely. I think one that I developed, especially during my time in seminary, was taking as many opportunities to pray, Mm, mm -hmm. whether it was a prayer of gratitude or just even a prayer of just open dialogue, because really that's what prayer is. It's just dialogue between you and God. And there are different forms that that can take. And so I have found that while I'm cooking breakfast, I pray. While I'm going to work, I pray. After I visit someone, I pray. And it's just one of those things that I have found to calm my heart. I have found that it's something to help me discern, help me to reflect, and really just feel closer to God. And as silly as it sounds, like if I'm, you know, laying in bed watching TV, I pray, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, if it's something that helps me just to be and to be still and to be still and know and, you know, Mm. just kind of go on and on with that phrase is really centering. I also listen to your podcast at night because it's so good. What? Okay. (laughs) So good. I I just want to mention that I did not pay you to say that. That was No, but I'll take payment at any time. This is a genuine plug. Thank you. (laughs) It's, this is the type of dialogue and conversation that needs to take place on a regular basis mm. because this is what it means to be in fellowship is getting to know the people in your life. And it's true. You come to know that there really are no normal people and that's the way it should be because really what is normal? I don't know. You know me. I'm oh not my normal. Gosh. No. <laughs> so this podcast is just something that I'm able to turn on. I can listen to it and I'm able to take what's being said and shape it for myself or just wrestle with it or whatever. Mm. And to just hear other people share their life and to see how God is working in their life and to see how this narrative of what it means to be human is taking place in every person that you've talked to is just so cool. I love it. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for this. So good. Anything else that you continually come to? Do you drink the same coffee? Do you like the same kind of breakfasts? I'm interested in these kind of details. So if you have anything else to share, I'm, I'm interested to hear them. I typically, I, I tend to drink a lot of British blend tea. That's mm-hmm. my go-to. Yeah, you got, the, uh, you got the London fog. 
I got the London Fog going for me. I really tried to, and lately I haven't been so good at it, but it's been a lot of change, so that makes sense. But <laughs> I really like to cook breakfast. I love cooking big oh. meals. Okay. There's a variety of smell and shape and texture that, to me, helps ground me, mm. something that I can focus on and give my time to and to do it well, knowing that it's it's more than just food. It's nourishing my body. It's it's providing nutrition and it's providing energy for me to go about my day because it's a busy day as a pastor. It's not just Sunday morning. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot more to it. And also mealtime is when Alex and I get to talk about our day. We do a thing called highs and lows where we share, you know, what was a low point of your day? What was a high point of your day? And that sparks conversation. Wow. That's so And that's cool. something we do at breakfast or dinner, or both, whenever we feel it's, you know, most appropriate to do it. It's a good way to think about your day, and how do you see your day? How do others see their day? And maybe if I was seeing Alex, and he said this was a low, I could say, oh, really? I didn't think that. And that, again, sparks conversation, and it allows you to see the other person, Mm. see other experiences, and really think about your own, and how you're giving your time to your day. What are you doing to fill your day? What makes it good? What makes it high or low sort of thing? I like that. I like that kind of ritual, especially like protecting that mealtime at a table and not plunking down on a couch, turning Netflix on, Mm -hmm. which certainly has its place. Like there's a, I I think there's a place and a, and a permission for everything, but that kind of intentional connection over a meal is so good, which is also why I'm Mm -hmm. fascinated and absolutely in love with Eucharist. If we're going to bring it back to church language real quick, like, It seems to me that there's a few things, of course we can think of a few, but there are a few things that are more intimate than watching someone you love eat because they're feeding the engine of their body in front of you. Like Mm -hmm. there's, there's something sacred about nourishing ourselves and nourishing ourselves among other people, which is again, why I find beauty in the Eucharist so much is like, we're engaging in this together. You know, we all peeled a, a small pinch of bread off the same loaf and now we're putting it inside each other and ourselves. Absolutely. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. This has been a fantastic conversation. It's already gone an hour longer than I was intending to. So I want to wrap it up so we can both make time for the dinners we need to with our spouse tonight. Absolutely. (laughs) So to wind it down, I'm curious to ask what you're currently reading. And this is fiction and nonfiction. Ooh, so... One fiction book that I have gotten back into is, of course, The Hobbit. Nice, nice. That was the first book that I read in third grade. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need to reread it. I just, something inside me was like, it was such a good book. There are things that I don't remember or something that I'm misremembering. I need to read it. Right. So that's one thing that I've been reading. Okay. And one work of nonfiction that I've been reading lately is... I mentioned it earlier, it's called Canoeing the Mountains, and it's a great book about leadership and working in community and finding new innovative ways to lead and to spark change in a setting, specifically in a church. Mm. Uh, It's very cool. Very cool. That's cool. What are you currently listening to, both music and podcasts? Obviously your podcast, but I've already talked about that. You sure have. I've also been into comedy, and one that I've really loved lately is Zoltan Kaz's. 
His stand-up is mm. so good. Okay. I love stand-up comedy. I've decided if being a pastor fails, I'm just going to take it on the road and do stand-up. There's a lot of material there that would be great for stand-up. And for music, I've been really falling back into 90s, kind of early 2000s with Hootie and the Blowfish. Wow. Okay. Weezer has really been coming up a lot. Yes. I don't know why, but I'm fine with that. Like, I'm vibing with that (laughs) hardcore, and that's okay. (laughs) Excellent. I like it. What are you currently watching? One movie that Alex and I have been coming back to is any of the Marvel movies. Uh, Okay. They're just so good. And we have really good conversation about, you know, why did this happen? Or, you know, do you remember what happened in the comics? Things like that. That and those are just good movies. There are some things that not everyone likes, but there are just overall good movies. (laughs) And I think one show, and I said it during the rapid fire, is RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. That show, I don't, I don't even know how I got hooked on it. <laughs> I think it was a classmate in seminary was like, have you ever seen this? And I, I said, no. So she introduced it to me. And then every Friday, this last semester, nice. we were glued to the TV watching the live episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race. And it's so cool because it's creative and you learn a lot about the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and- it's just such a good show. It's wholesome and it's funny and there's, you know, heart to heart moments and, you know, there's drama. It's got a little bit of everything if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> that's awesome. I love it. Yes. Emily, this has been spectacular. You and I have gone for almost three hours just now and I'm sure we could go a lot longer. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so excited that we got to reconnect. Like you were one of my best friends in high school. All four years we met playing drums in band and like all the way through senior year we were we were doing almost everything together and it was yeah we had so many classes together and outside of that even too we we just had such good dialogue and yeah there's only so many few people after high school that i chose to stay in touch with or wanted to see how they're doing and like you're one of those people for sure Mm, i'm so glad and i think if memory serves me, you are our senior class president. So I think you and I are actually on the hook for planning our reunion coming up in three years. Oh, no. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oops. Oh, ew, that's coming up. Ah! That's three years away. Oh, man, that just sounds not right? good. <laughs> but I, I, I think the like the entire purpose of having class presidents every year <laughs> is that we yep, plan the reunion. That's true. So Mm, good to know. (laughs) So you as president, I will be reporting for duty as secretary treasurer and, uh, and we'll get this done. (laughs) (laughs) We will in some way or fashion. (laughs) Oh, so good. This has been a fantastic conversation to close us out. Would you please read our very favorite quote for this podcast? The only normal people, you know, are the ones you don't know very well. 